I have a confession to make. It's not something that I talk a lot about, probably because I think you might judge me for it or make assumptions or not understand, but I want to talk about it today. My confession is this. I'm a charismatic Christian. I was raised in a Pentecostal Assemblies of God church, and though I see a few things differently now than the church I grew up in, at my core, I'm still a charismatic. Sometimes in New Denver, I feel alone in this. I've gotten to know most of you over the years, and I've, I've listened to the stories of your faith backgrounds and journeys. I found that I'm by far in the minority. Most of you did not grow up in charismatic churches. Some of you, especially those who didn't grow up in church at all, might have no idea what it means to be a charismatic Christian. But for others of you, you probably have some pretty vivid preconceived images when I throw out labels like Pentecostal or charismatic. Maybe you picture a televangelist convulsing on a stage and claiming to slay people in the spirit and do miracles for a small fee or donation. Maybe you picture a group of people in a church chaotically speaking in tongues or prophesying or dancing in the aisles or handling snakes. And now those of you who didn't grow up in church and had no preconceived ideas are slightly concerned that I just associated myself with this type of Christian. My husband, Phil, grew up Lutheran, like German, Wisconsin, Lutheran. There was no slaying, there was no prophesying, there were only facts and order and logic. When we got engaged, I brought Phil to Washington with me for Christmas to meet my family, and we went to the church that I grew up in. He was so excited to see the show, that's what he called it. He wanted to see the extreme caricatures or stereotypes of hyper-charismatics that he had heard about. He was pretty disappointed when it was mostly just a regular old church service. No healings or miracles, definitely no snakes. But still, there was something about it that was different, something in the air, in the ethos of that church. I want to dive into that a bit today, and then we'll circle back next month for part two. I've called this two-part series, Confessions of a Charismatic. So to start, I want to provide a working definition of what I mean by charismatic to get us all on the same page. Charismatic is a big umbrella term that includes a variety of Christians, but there's one trait that holds us all together, and it's this. A charismatic Christian is any follower of Jesus who embraces and emphasizes the power and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers today. A charismatic Christian expects God's spirit to be present and active in their life in the church and in the world today. We charismatics are comfortable with God doing the things that only he can do, supernatural things like healings and miracles. We expect God to speak to people today. We expect him to, at times, speak through people today. Charismatics don't just embrace God's power as a theoretical possibility, but they emphasize it and seek it out in their everyday lives. There are whole churches who consider themselves to be charismatic. They might be part of a denomination or they might be a non-denominational church. There's a wide scope of charismatic churches, but they all tend to look alike in these particular ways. Charismatic churches tend to have an openness to the work of the Holy Spirit, an atmosphere or culture that's more emotionally expressive, it's like the opposite of German Lutherans or Norton Herbst. <laughs> charismatic churches tend to have passionate prayer and worship. And charismatic churches emphasize gathering together to share an experience with God, not merely to gain knowledge about God. Charismatic churches emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit in the world today. They're emotionally expressive and passionate, especially when it comes to prayer and worship. And their heart is all about experiencing and having a close personal relationship with the living God, not just knowing things about him. 
Of course, this is a rough sketch, but does this feel like a fair depiction? Do I have any charismatic friends in the room who can verify this? Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you. Every Christian tradition has defining characteristics that make it stand apart from the others. There's something different in the air in every stream of Christianity. We know that every individual person has strengths and weaknesses. We all have unique personalities and wirings that make us prone to being really good at certain things and not so good at others. Well, it's like that for churches and even broader for church traditions too. Every church tradition has strengths and weaknesses. Every church has personality quirks. Here's an example. If I were to classify the personality of New Denver Church using the Myers-Briggs typology, I'd say that we were way more of a T than an F. We're a thinking church, not a feeling church. There are individuals in this church who would identify as feelers, but as a whole, I think the personality of our church would be defined more as thinking than feeling. If you want some evidence of this, here's an actual slide from Norton's sermon last Sunday. It was an excellent sermon, and if you weren't here, you should go back and listen to the podcast on our website. But this is a real slide. It's dates and facts. As a church, we care deeply about having good theology, right thinking about God. We care about having logic and reason and rationale for our faith and rooting our faith in history. We don't think faith in God is about making a blind leap or checking your brain at the door. This is good. This is a strength of ours. I'm proud to be a part of a church that operates this way. And this strength, if overdone, can become a weakness. Do we make any space for emotions? Is there any room in our theology for feelings? I sure hope so. Jesus said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. These terms he's using include our brain, our will, our emotions, our body, our whole self. The greatest command is to love God with everything we are. Right thoughts about God paired with right feelings about God and right actions toward God are what's going to please God the most and make us able to reflect him most fully. The church has an impossible job. Every church is made up of imperfect, broken, limited people who come together to try to represent an infinite and perfect God to the watching world. Good luck with that. We reflect God in part, and other churches reflect God in part, and the hope is, on our best days, as enabled by the Holy Spirit, we can paint a mosaic, broken and beautiful, of an image that almost captures who God is and what he's like. By ourselves, as individuals, we can only reflect one little slice of who God is. We're like one little glass shard of a mirror. Together as a church, we can paint a little bit of a fuller picture, but we're still limited by the strengths and weaknesses, the personality of our one little church. Together with other churches, the mirror becomes bigger and the image of God becomes clearer still. The only exact likeness of God is Jesus. But looking at churches side by side within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity can paint a pretty good picture that gives us the gist of who God is. Broken glass shards coming together to create a mirror that reflects as best we can this infinite God we're called to represent. This means we have a lot we can learn about God by looking at other churches or church traditions. They each hold a piece of the puzzle. Seeing their strengths can reveal to us what might be our weaknesses or our blind spots. If we want to grow in better reflecting who God is, it's a good and healthy practice to humbly learn from others who with the Holy Spirit inside of them are seeking to reflect the same God and who are able to show us aspects of God that we might be neglecting. Every church emphasizes certain aspects of who God is. Those are their strengths. 
When overdone, the implication is that every church ends up intentionally or unintentionally neglecting or minimizing other aspects of who God is. One trait is highlighted, another trait is ignored. It's hard to have a perfectly balanced view of who God is, especially because so many of God's characteristics are in tension with one another. There are paradoxes to who God is. There are truths about God that are good and important and when put together, help us see him more clearly, but it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how these things can be true at the same time. Here's a classic example. God is transcendent and he is imminent. What does that mean? God is transcendent. He is big, he is other, he is holy. In some ways, he is so high above us. He's perfect and powerful. He's all-knowing, he's all-good. He can do whatever he wants to do. He is able. We can never fully grasp or comprehend all of who he is. We can't contain him. We can't control him. He is bigger than us, smarter than us, more powerful than us. We read in the book of Acts, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Psalm 8 says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our response to a God this big should be utter humility, utter respect, utter fear, utter worship. He is God and we are not. But God is also imminent. He makes himself knowable. We can't know him fully, but we can know him in part. He is revealed to us through his world, through his word, through his son, and through his spirit. We can actually know God and have a relationship with him. The creator enters his creation. We can experience his presence at times. He is close. He is near. We can learn to recognize his voice. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. He says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. Paul writes, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We can have a close, personal relationship with God, who is our shepherd, our father, our friend. God is transcendent, big, holy, out there. God is imminent, knowable, intimate, right here. We know both of these things are true, but sometimes it's hard to hold them in tension. We tend to emphasize one over the other. When I think about friends who are really different from me, Their strengths seem like superpowers that I don't have. I think the biggest strength of the charismatic stream of churches, their biggest superpower, is their emphasis on the imminence of God. They truly believe and know in their bones, in the fabric of their DNA as a body of churches, that God is near, that he is close, that he is personal and knowable, that he wants to speak, that he wants to act, that he is ready and eager to meet with us whenever we come to meet with him. That's a huge strength It's something we at New Denver can learn from. It's not that we don't know this in theory. In our theology, we're open to the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that God is with us, and we'd say that God can speak and work when and as he chooses. We certainly believe this on paper. We even talk about this at times. Brian said last Sunday while leading worship, we know that God is with us. God, you are here, and you draw near to us, so we draw near to you. One of our five core values is presence. We'd say, of course, we want to come together to share an experience with God, not just gain knowledge about him. We know God is always with us. We want to be aware of that and attuned to his voice. We want to be fully present to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. 
But I think out of our five core values, this one is the most aspirational for us, meaning we don't always see it right here and now. It's something we want to define us as a church, but we have to keep intentionally pursuing it. I don't think it comes as naturally to us as, say, scripture or community. So today, I want us to look at our charismatic friends and learn from them. I want us to notice how they're doing it. Presence seems to come naturally to them. It bubbles up from a deep well within them. They so firmly know and believe that God is with them. For them, this is like a superpower. For us, it's something we have to remind ourselves of. Here's the bottom line for today. Here's what I think we can learn from our charismatic friends. God is with us. His spirit is in us. What would it look like if we believed that God was actually here? We know this in our heads. I don't doubt that for a minute. We know the verses to back it up. We just read in our reading through the Bible in a year plan, Ezekiel's prophecy, where God says, I will put my spirit in you. In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Just as Jesus promised in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and fills or indwells Jesus' followers. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, God put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Timothy, Paul says, the Holy Spirit lives in us. God is with us. His spirit is in us. We know this in our heads, but what if we believed this in our hearts and responded to it with our bodies? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I think in New Denver, we might intellectually agree with some of the same things as our charismatic friends, but in practice, we operate much more like a non-charismatic church. We know that God is with us, and we're open to God acting and speaking, but I don't know that we usually expect it. I don't know that our aim is to come together to share an experience with God, or that many of us seek to be aware of God's presence in our everyday lives. And I understand that there can be valid pushback here. What if I ask God to intervene and he doesn't seem to want to show up? What if I really long to hear God's voice and he chooses not to speak? I guess I believe that God is close, that he's with us, but sometimes it feels like he's a million miles away. When we expect God to act or speak or reveal his presence, doesn't this all just set us up for disappointment? Sometimes. Yeah. Last Tuesday marked the four-year anniversary of the worst day of my life. On September 5th, 2019, my big brother died. Some of you remember this. My brother Philip was 32. He was married to my sister-in-law, Jen, and their kids, Josh and Bella, were four and two when he died. A couple days before he passed, their family had been traveling. They lived in Florida, but they took a fun road trip to Nashville over Labor Day weekend. While they were there, Philip interviewed for a job that he was really excited about, and one we found out later he would have gotten. They were dreaming about moving and starting a new chapter in Tennessee. And then as they were driving home, Philip came down with a cold. He had a fever and other head cold symptoms. They arrived back home, he went to bed, and he never woke up. When I got the call from my dad in the morning that my brother had randomly died, I was in complete shock. Somehow my parents and sisters and I all managed to fly to Florida that day and to quickly prepare a funeral. We were devastated, we were angry, we were mostly just in disbelief. My brother loved Jesus, so I remember that at the funeral, the church he was a part of led some worship songs. 
And I remember at one point hearing my niece Bella look at the casket and then up at her mom and ask, is daddy in that box? My sister-in-law, through her tears, said, yeah. And then Bella asked, when is he going to come out? I remember that feeling like a dagger that shattered my heart into a million pieces. She was just two. She couldn't understand. She had her whole life in front of her and overnight was robbed of having her daddy to share it with her. After the service, they let the family members go outside and we stood at the entrance to the church and waved while we watched the hearse drive away. The car drove my brother away and left behind a widow and two newly fatherless children. Where is God in that? Sometimes Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and the dead man gets up and walks. Sometimes God lets the dead man ride away in a hearse. I wanted God to speak. I wanted God to act. I wanted God to do something about this. I wanted him to prevent it in the first place, but if he wasn't going to prevent it, then do a miracle, do something, anything. Let my brother live. My charismatic upbringing taught me that even though I had just seen my brother's body lying in an open casket, this didn't have to be the end. God is with us. His spirit is in us. God could raise my brother back to life if he chose to. Believe me, we prayed for that. But God did nothing. He allowed my brother to die. He allowed my brother to stay dead. They drove the hearse away, and I waved goodbye. My husband, Phil, was with me through all this, and later that day, he confided in me his experience that he had at the funeral. He said, during the worship, I felt a rush of wind. I looked up to see if there was an air conditioning vent blowing on me, and I looked around to see if anyone else felt it, but there was no vent, and no one else seemed to notice. It was just me, and I know that that wind was the presence of the Holy Spirit. God showed up in a physical, tangible way to this unsuspecting Lutheran boy. In the Bible, we see that the presence of the Holy Spirit is sometimes described as a rush of wind. Phil got to experience that, and it was a reminder to me that in our lowest moments, God is with us. He didn't do what I wanted him to do, but he was there. Part of me wanted to accuse him of abandoning us, but he hadn't. God is big. He's transcendent. He can't be manipulated or controlled. He doesn't always do what we wish or expect. So when we seek him, especially if we're seeking a certain feeling or experience or outcome, we will be disappointed at times. It's a valid concern. We ask God to speak, to move, to show up in a certain way, and sometimes he doesn't do what we want him to do. And yet, we can't ignore that God is with us. His spirit is in us. What would it look like if we believed that God was actually here? We know that God is with us each individually, but I think there's something special that happens when we gather together as a church. Do you remember the song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he also tells his followers, you are the light of the world. The Holy Spirit is described in places in the Bible like wind, but in other places he's described like fire. The idea is that as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, and he's like a light. We all carry around within us a little candle of God's presence that shines through us, which means there's something special that happens when we gather together in one room. It's easy to ignore one little candle, 
But when all those little candles come together, it becomes hard to ignore. The light becomes blinding. It's hard to miss it when you're surrounded by a blazing fire. If we can at times be aware of God's presence when we're on our own, how much more should we expect to experience God's presence when we come together as a church? I think we can learn from our charismatic friends to anticipate, welcome, and even expect to experience God's presence, especially when we gather together. God is here and he is wanting to speak to us. Do you believe that? Are you aware of that? What would it look like to become a church that actually expects God to speak, to change our lives, to transform us into his likeness, into the likeness of Jesus, not on our terms, but on his? God is with us. His spirit is in us. What would it look like if we believed that God was actually here? I can tell you what it looks like in many charismatic churches, I had the opportunity this summer to go back to Washington to the church I grew up in. I hadn't been there in over eight years since Phil and I were engaged, and I brought him along with me to see the show. We were there for two Sundays, and do you know what stuck out more than anything as being different from New Denver? It was that the people at that church are passionate about worship, and they're passionate about prayer. God is with us. His spirit is in us. What would it look like if we believed that God was actually here? I think at the very least, it would look like passion in worship and passion in prayer. It's not like at New Denver, we don't worship. We worship and we pray. But I want to be gentle here. Have you guys seen yourselves? I mean, we're basically all sitting in a circle, so you see it too, right? We walk in these doors on Sunday morning, and we're so excited to greet each other. It's genuine. This community loves each other really well. But then we come into this room, and it's like, as we pray, as we listen to a sermon, and especially as we worship, most of our faces are just, I mean, blank stares at best. Some of you look straight up hostile. Our worship leaders try really hard to draw and invite us into an awareness of God's presence. And when I look around the room, it's like they're pulling teeth. Like, literally, most of you look like you'd rather be at the dentist having a root canal than be forced to sing out loud. I guess it makes sense given that a lot of the church backgrounds of people in this room are from streams that identify as the frozen chosen. I'm sure there are some people in charismatic churches who also suffer from RBF, but on the whole, they seem excited to worship God. There are extremes in any group of people. Strengths, when overdone, become a weakness. But worshiping in a charismatic church is fun. There's singing, there's clapping, there's dancing at times. Here, if you want to dance, you have to go serve in the toddler or preschool rooms. They know how to dance. I think God delights in seeing kids praise him with their whole bodies, but dancing is not just for kids. King David was famous for worshiping God through dance. If that's too much for you, you can just pick one of these. Stand up if you're able. We're going to practice these together. These are some worship signals to get you started. I'm serious. Stand up. This will be fun. We'll start at the rookie level to warm up. All right, here's the elbow flap. That one works well if you have pockets. Carry the TV. Go big screen. That's a little wider. My fish was this big. Hold my baby, Mufasa. That's elbows at 90 degrees, people. Okay, pro level. Julian light bulbs. Ooh, goalposts and harbor, and that's a combo move. Okay, here's three quick ones. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom, expert level. Are you ready? Village people, Rocky, touchdown. Good job, good job. Okay, you guys can have a seat. Wow, I didn't know if some of you could get past the rookie level. Maybe stick with that elbow flap for now. The truth is, no matter our upbringing, we're not actually strangers in this culture to worshiping with our whole bodies. Check out this image. This isn't a charismatic at a worship service. This is just a fan at a Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) 
Did you guys see the New York Times article that came out this summer that said the fans at a Taylor Swift concert in Seattle shook their own so hard it registered as a magnitude 2.3 earthquake? And this isn't a phenomenon unique to Swifties. Apparently, Seattle experienced another 2.3 earthquake back in 2011 when Seahawks fans roared in celebration following a last-minute touchdown. They were practicing their touchdown worship posture, I'm sure. God is with us. His spirit is in us. What would it look like if we believed that God was actually here? Would our worship cause seismic activity in Denver? Now hear me right. I'm not saying that we need to contrive emotional experiences in order to worship God. Ew. This is why non-charismatic Christians often flatly dismiss charismatic Christians. Everybody hates that. Some of you are not very emotionally expressive in any situation. I get that. But I think some of you actually are expressive, just not at church. I think some of you pride yourselves on being calm and rational, logical, thoughtful, and those things are good. That's a strength of ours as a church. So let's use those logical minds for a moment. Wouldn't the most rational response to being in the presence of the Almighty God be fear and trembling and a passionate expression of heartfelt gratitude and worship? If we really believed that God was right here in this room, the transcendent come imminent, wouldn't we respond with our whole bodies? Wouldn't the most logical thing be to fall to our knees in humble awe and repentance? Wouldn't we raise our hands in praise or surrender? When I was visiting the charismatic church this summer, one of their pastors explained the worship posture of raising hands like this. She said, when we open our hands to surrender something to God, it's really easy to grab that control right back. When we raise our hands to surrender something to God, we're completely letting go. What we do with our bodies when we worship communicates something to God. Opening our hands can say, God, I'm open to receiving from you. Lifting our hands can say, God, I praise you, or God, I need you, I surrender to you. You know who I see lifting their hands all the time? My son, Teddy. He's 15 months old, and he's in the stage where he can't say much, but he raises his arms as a signal that he wants to be picked up and held. Do you ever feel like you just need to be picked up and held by God, your Father? Sometimes charismatic Christians lift hands to God in praise, sometimes in surrender, or sometimes even in search for comfort. There are lots of ways to expand and add meaning to our worship of God through using our physical bodies. Our bodies can express things that we don't always have the words in the moment to express. I think in our worship together at New Denver, physical expression is an underutilized resource. We're not very passionate in our worship. and I think this is a weakness of ours as a church. I guess it's possible that some of you are really feeling it on the inside and the outside just doesn't match, but generally our outward expressions are a pretty good indicator of what's happening internally. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, you know what I mean? I'd encourage and challenge you to give it a try. Try a new worship posture today as we sing to close the service. It might feel awkward or uncomfortable to you at first. Most new practices do. But let's fumble in it together. Let's build these weak muscles and pursue this as a community. Let's learn from the charismatic stream how to love the Lord our God with our whole heart and strength. I think we can learn what it looks like to be passionate in worship, and I think we can learn what it looks like to be passionate in prayer. The first week I attended church back in Washington this summer, I was crying like 15 minutes into the service. And I know I cry all the time, surprise, surprise, but this was different. They hadn't even gotten to the sermon yet. I cried during the opening prayer. It was so passionate, so 
heartfelt. It was like they actually believed that God was in the room and was listening to them and that he wanted to respond and moved based on their requests. It's like they read Jesus' teaching in Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow, and they took it to heart. When they prayed, they really prayed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I challenge you to try out a new worship posture today, and I challenge you to join us next week for prayer downstairs. This is something new we just started. It's a quick 20-minute prayer gathering of anyone who wants to join in between the services the first and third Sundays of the month. Last week was the first one, and it was awesome. I sensed God's presence when I walked into that room. I think this is a great opportunity for our church to live out our value of presence and to act like we believe God is actually here, wanting to listen to us, maybe even wanting to speak to us too. I don't think charismatic churches are doing things perfectly. I don't think any church is doing things perfectly. And I think on the whole, New Denver is doing a lot of things really, really well. But there's always room to grow when trying to reflect an infinite God to the watching world. And I think there's a lot we can learn from our charismatic friends. I think we can learn about expecting and seeking God's presence and power in our lives and in our gatherings. And I think we can learn about responding to God with our whole hearts, not just our whole minds. Let me pray for us. God, we confess that we don't have it all together. As a church, we're not doing everything right. I ask that you would soften our hearts, that we might be open to learning from other streams of the Christian faith. I pray that you would give us a fresh awareness of your presence with us, that we would become a church that looks like we truly believe you are actually here.